What's up, everybody? This is Cortland Allen from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet companies and I try to get a sense of how they got to where they are today. How do they make decisions both in their personal lives and at their businesses, and what exactly makes their businesses tick? Today, I'm talking to Vicky Shu. She's the founder of a company called Habitica. Vicky, thanks so much for coming on the show, and it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Cortland. I am excited to be here. And I'm excited to have you. I think Habitica is right at the intersection of a lot of topics that I am personally interested in. It's a business, uh, and I obviously love businesses. It's a game, and I have a long history of spending countless hours playing games. And it's also very focused around the topic of human psychology and how we form habits. So it's a lot of stuff that I like. But before we jump into all that, let's talk about you. I love your, your Twitter bio. It says Vicky Shu, attorney, writer, former trucker, CEO of Habitica. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit more about who you are? All right. Uh, I am Vicky Shu, and I will commend you, Cortland, for pronouncing my name correctly, even though every person with the last name HSU seems to pronounce it differently. Yeah, so definitely an attorney and writer. I had gone, I can go through the, the bio really quickly, is that I had gone to law school, graduated from law school in the middle of the recession. So 2008, people were getting their off their job offers revoked because in law school, generally you interview for a firm and then have that set up and basically coast your last semester. That did not happen. Firms were going out of business. When I went out for interviews, it was like me, little brand new minted law school graduate, and, you know, the guy from Columbia Law who had been on Wall Street for 10 years and had just been let go and trying to compete with me for this little, like, one lawyer firm. So it was a rough time as an attorney. Uh, and then I got connected with a trucking company who was having some legal issues, um, needed somebody to kind of just monitor, monitor the back office operations. And I was looking at that opportunity compared to some of the offers I was getting, which was like people who were like, oh, you know, there's a lot of competition. We'll, we'd like to try you out for free for three months. And then maybe after that, we'll start you at, you know, $10 an hour. And I'm like, this trucking company actually makes money. It's an interesting opportunity. It's a, it's a nice intersection of like environmental and constitutional law and employment issues. And it's I would get to see the backside of a working company that made, you know, four to five million a year. Not a bad gig. So that's where the trucking company, the trucker part of uh, my Twitter bio comes into play. Uh, as I worked for a little family owned trucking company out in Long Beach for a couple of years, really learned the ins and outs of managing a cash flow positive business and a host of other skill sets as well. Did you ever get to drive one of the trucks? I did not. So you actually need a special license for that. And I did consider actually going out for a commercial license. The timing didn't work out, but I have absolutely climbed in and out of a cab to check the mileage, uh, lifted up the hood to check out what exactly had been done to it, <laughs> and walked around and did the safety inspections with the CHP officers. Cool. Uh, my coworkers would always joke that the CHP were really happy to work with me whenever they came in, probably because I was a young woman in a space where there really are not a lot of young women. So I have a confession to make. I All right. downloaded Habitica and started using it a few months back, and then I purposely stopped using it uh, and deleted it okay. from my phone because I realized that if I got too into it, then all I would want to do is talk to you about the features and the details of the game, and nobody listening would have any idea what we're talking about. <laughs> so I stopped. 
And now I am okay. in the same position as many audience members, although I'm sure among people listening, there are also many Habitica players. So let me ask you, what is Habitica exactly? and How does it work and why do people use it? Yeah, so Habitica is a gamified productivity app. And what that means is we basically take your list of like habits you want to work on, your list of daily commitments, and your to-do list, and make it all into a checklist that earns you experience points and gold coins that you can use to level up an avatar and fight bosses with your friends. So in a sense, it is a an advanced version of a sticker chart that we all probably experience as kids in that you're just like checking things off and moving towards a particular goal. Uh, but we really took the time to try and model it on like World of Warcraft, MMORPG mechanics at a really basic level. And Cortland, I'm happy to talk to you at any time about the, the features if you want to get into the really <laughs> nitty gritty. Uh, but basically, the line we were trying to walk is to be as engaging as possible for somebody with, you know, just a really rudimentary understanding of games. And also not to be so engaging that you would all your time would get sucked down into this rabbit hole of optimizing your little video game character. Right. So who's using this? Is it primarily gamers or is it business people trying to get more work done or people doing chores with their homes? You know what? It runs the entire spectrum. Our user base is probably 60% 18 to 44, but of course that is actually a really big range. 30% of those are the 18 to 24 range. So college or just after college and then young adults, 24 to 44, sort of uh, getting into jobs, learning to adult is the phrase I use. Right. And just trying to figure themselves out. So definitely work and school is a large use case because our user numbers drop on the weekends really kind of drastically. It's kind of funny. We also have everyone from hardcore accountants, lawyers, medical students, uh, people trying to work on physical habits, people trying to achieve goals like writing their uh, writing novels. And I think we had one letter from a family that was using it with their grandmother. They had three generations of people on Habitica all sort of working together and fighting fighting monsters. Oh, wow. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what I would have had to do to get my grandmother on Habitica. She was born in, I think, 1912. <laughs> so that would have oh, been, wow. a, been <laughs> yeah. a stretch. So just for some context, can you explain a little bit about what the business model is behind Habitica, how it makes money, and then maybe something about how many customers you have and, and what kind of revenue you generate. Yeah, so Habitica has actually had a really kind of evolving business model. When we started out, it was very basic microtransactions, um, in-app purchases. You know, a couple of bucks would give you some uh, in-game currency that you could spend. And then we realized very quickly that to make this sustainable and grow it to a business that could support full-time employees, we would have to try um, offering moving to a subscription model, basically. And that was sort of the kicker. That's what pushed us into being able to bring on three people full-time at a very, very low salary. I mean, they call it ramen profitable for a reason because you really can't afford much more than ramen. Sort of that expanded what was available to us very quickly. Currently, we are still on the subscription model that brings in probably a mid to high six figures annually. It's comfortably sustaining a handful or maybe two handfuls of employees and contractors. Our cash flow positive, generally, in part because we're very conservative about how we spend money. We are a remote company. So we definitely take advantage of not having to pay for things like uh, office space 
and figuring out other ways to deploy capital in a way that can really leverage our particular interesting skill sets. I mentioned a few of my favorite things about Habitica. I like that it's a business, a game, and sort of a psychology application. What's your favorite part of Habitica, and what do you like most about being the CEO? Oh, man. Uh, you got to choose. No cop-outs. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> the, really, the really amazing thing about Habitica and working on Habitica has been the people involved. Everyone who works on Habitica right now uh, that gets paid to work on Habitica has come out of the community. Uh, so they were volunteering their their efforts for a really long time before we even had the money to to sort of dedicate some hours to to what we needed to get done as a business. That means that the people who work on Habitica are I, I'm beholden to them. I consider myself a servant CEO in that my job is to make sure that they can continue doing this work for as long as possible in a way that makes sense for both them and the larger Habitica community. And really, one of the joys also of of having Habitica be a consumer-facing product is that we get exposed to cool people like yourself. The big surprise of a couple years ago was that we have a lot of science fiction and fantasy writers, like award-winning published authors on our platform who are using it to make word count and submit their projects on time. Oh, wow. And and so, like, we can look at, you know, the Nebula Awards or the Hugo Awards and be like, oh, yeah, you know, three people on this list who won our Habitica users are known to be Habitica users. So that's been really impressive and amazing. Well, we've got a ton of stuff to cover. I want to ask you a lot of questions about Habitica and about the community behind it. But first, let's talk about you for a bit so we can learn about what the path is like to go from Vicky Shu attorney and training to Vicky Shu CEO of Habitica. Was the first time that you ever got interested in entrepreneurship and perhaps being a founder when you worked at this trucking company or were you interested in it before that? Um, I think I'd always been aware of that as a path. And so when I mentioned earlier that um, I'd never thought I would be heading up a tech startup, I'd always sort of had this in the back of my head. It's like, oh, I wonder if it's possible to generate an actual business, I don't know, selling stuff on Etsy or doing a stylist service. I, for a while... I had been doing a little bit of work doing production design on independent films and just sort of feeling out what was out there in terms of what people could make a living doing. And one of the reasons I went to law school is because I come from a conservative Asian family, which I'm sure is a good chunk of your listeners. And they, you know, it was the ultimatum of, well, you know, you can do, you can do medicine or, or, or law or engineering it was really the three options. And I had decided that law was the probably the easiest and best match for my skill set. And I like the idea that you could potentially build a business, which is a law firm, which is what a law firm is essentially. So I thought I would try that out. But it was always sort of like this general awareness of the business world, the corporate world, intellectual property was strong interest. And it had gotten, I think, clear enough that something to do with business was probably going to be the best place for me. And even I think in in corporate law, my professor had flagged that as you are very money oriented. And he meant that kindly and not in a bad way. <laughs> but it was like, it was just one of those things where like that was driving me a lot more than, for example, environmental law was driving me. I think being money oriented makes a lot of sense 
And it's one of the big things behind Indie Hackers itself is I like to talk to people about how much money they're making. It's become kind of this unspeakable thing. You can't talk about wanting to make money, but money is essentially fungible. You can exchange money for anything. You could make a bunch of money and donate it all to charity. So it's not an inherently bad thing to want to make money. And I'm curious, where did your obsession with business come about? Was it primarily that you wanted to make a lot of money? Were there certain role models that you had, certain things that you wanted to do? Or was it just sort of innate in you that... Uh, you saw the world and thought that business is for me and I'm going to be a lawyer because at least I can start my own law firm. You know what? I don't know that it was necessarily like I want to make a lot of money, but what I always come back to is the idea that, you know, money will not make you happy, but lack of money will definitely make you unhappy, right? And my family particularly grew up very poor. Like, for example, I was surprisingly old before I realized that my mother had probably grown up without potable water. Uh, because she has this anxiety reaction if we pull dishes out of the dish rack and they aren't completely dry yet. <laughs> it's like this really overblown reaction. And I think I was like, I must have been like 27 before I finally figured that out. That, that that was not a normal thing. And so I think that was probably a really big in- influence looking back on it in that you always have to figure out, you know, how you're going to eat. You have to be able to take care of yourself before you can even start considering taking care of, you know, your family and everyone around you. And that is something that's coming up a lot, I think, now in a lot of the self-care discussions that are going on online, in that you have to be able to take care of yourself emotionally and physically. But I think money is a critical part of that. And just understanding even just personal finances is a really big part of that. So you mentioned that you thought being a lawyer, in addition to letting you start your own law firm, also matched up with your personal skills. When I was a kid, I actually had a stint doing mock trial in high school, and I thought I would be a great lawyer. I'm curious, what, what skills did you have that really made <laughs> law intriguing to you? Uh, what kind of person makes a good lawyer? You know, the, the funny thing is I was never a particularly great debater. I mean, I could if pushed to it, but you really, really have to push me. I am and have always been a more solid writer as a communicator than a speaker. Uh, so there are plenty more charismatic CEOs out there who can do, you know, podcasts and YouTube videos and really garner following. But I really do best when behind a screen articulating my thoughts and being able to sort of clean it up as I go. And one of the things that I think people don't realize about lawyers, if they're watching, you know, Law and Order or any other kind of legal drama, is that lawyers are by and large introverts. They get an office that they can shut the door and then just do their work. There are very few people who are sort of courtroom dramatists and really like the pontificating and the like the exposition, the speech making part of it. Um, even the litigators who are, you know, the people who handle lawsuits when people are being sued or suing others. Frequently, they are very quiet people. They just really like being able to organize their arguments because a courtroom is a very controlled environment. And because the rules are so strict and the procedures are very defined, it can be a very comfortable place if you don't like to be ruffled too often. That's fascinating. I, I went into law for the exact opposite reason. I was like, I love debating. I should be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I got out of it pretty quickly before high school ended. Let me ask about this trucking business. You eventually, <laughs> you, you stopped being an attorney and decided that the trucking world was for you. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that you learned about kind of the ins and outs of managing a cash flow positive business. How big was this trucking business and, and what are the ins and outs that you learned? 
Yeah. So let's see. The trucking business was roughly four to five million. When I joined, it was a recession. So it had dipped quite a bit um, during that time. There was probably 12 staff and another maybe 50 to 70 independent contractors who were the drivers. And that was one of the big legal challenges facing the industry at the time is basically the Clean Air Act mandated that a lot of the really old kind of junky trucks had to be taken off the road because they weren't meeting clean air emission standards. And that forced the industry to start buying new trucks, which all cost like $200,000 to $200,000 a piece. So what used to be a really easy, like almost the equivalent of driving for Uber kind of a business, like, you know, spend $10,000, pick up an old truck and then be able to, to make uh, a living turned into like, I cannot afford the equipment. I need to do my own business. Uh, so one of the challenges for a long time in that space was you were retaining drivers who were technically independent, but needed you to supply, needed the business to supply the trucks. Um, and so the business would buy these trucks, rent them out to the drivers. And the argument there was, you know, are drivers then employees because they're dependent on somebody else to, to provide the equipment they need to do their jobs. So that was one of the things that drew me to the business. But because the drivers were like iffy on becoming employees, they were like, well, we kind of like our lifestyle. We like being able to start and stop. And we're like, well, we just shelled. And on the, on the business side, you just shelled out a lot of money to provide these, provide equipment that's now just sitting empty because a driver isn't coming in because he had some other personal reasons. Um, I think a couple of years there was the Super Bowl or not the Super Bowl, the World Cup was going on. And nobody wanted to drive during the World Cup until their country lost, their country of origins lost. Of course. It was just like, because everybody was watching the game and we were like, well, you know, these jobs are coming in, they have to be moved, but nobody's around to move them. And that's, you know, that's one of those things where like, maybe I should go get a license so I can like jump in the car, just jump in the truck and go help out. But it was like dealing with those personalities. And of course, there was, again, the aspect of being female in a largely male business communicating with contractors who whose first language was not English. And then also coming into a legacy business of uh, people who had been there, you know, 10, 15, 20 years and had maybe gotten really complacent about stuff. Um, there was a woman who was sat behind me who would sleep half the day. And just get away with it? Yeah, you know, and it, it was one of the, that, that, was, that was sort of the point where like when she got a raise and I didn't get a raise, that was the point where we're like, you know... Maybe this isn't my life, right? Well, you just need to take more naps, Vicky. Yeah, clearly. And one of the reasons that she was there and had could get away with it was apparently um, when the business had first started out 20 years ago, she was super helpful. Like she came in pinch, pinch hit and the owners were grateful. And so they were willing to overlook that. So how did you transition from, from this trucking business into whatever came next? Yeah, so funny thing about that is this surprise me, but I think doesn't surprise anybody else, is that I got bored. <laughs> when, when you have a family-run kind of lifestyle e-business, there's not a lot of room for improvement, in part because you're fighting a lot of inertia organizationally. It's things like not being able to fire the person who's sleeping at her desk, right? Or it's fighting the shareholder who really wants more control but doesn't have the capital to take control also doesn't have the knowledge to strategize properly in the industry because he doesn't have the relationships. There was just a lot of things where 
I could make changes, but the changes would not be in my favor in the long term because it was just going against so much that it was sort of set. And as a note for the people who are building lifestyle businesses, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. The trucking company owners had basically built a business across 20 years. And for the last 10 years, all they had to do was come in for three to four hours every Friday, review the books and then take somebody out to lunch. That's all they had to do because the company ran itself. It kind of reminds me of the movie. I don't know if you've seen it. I think it's called The Founder and it's about Ray Kroc and how he kind of stumbled upon the McDonald brothers who were running their hamburger joint. And his ambition was just so much higher than theirs. His vision was like he was just driven to turn it into this gigantic national phenomenon. And they just wanted to keep their small store. And it, the movie is largely about the tensions between the two the two parties and kind of the history yeah. of McDonald's. I recommend anyone listening to watch it if you haven't. It's fascinating. But it sounds like you were you were Ray Kroc and you were tired of <laughs> the slow family, unambitious business lifestyle. I, I think it wasn't so much that I was um, tired of the lifestyle as in I knew I could make a difference and that was not the location to make a difference in. Well, let's talk about Habitica because clearly you are making a difference with this company. How did you first hear about Habitica and how did you initially get involved? Yeah. So one of the things that happened when I was bored at the trucking company is that I was starting to rebuild or sort of like start feeling out the possibility of just launching my own firm just as a solo attorney. Of course, I was based in Los Angeles. I had always had an interest in the entertainment, the film business side. I was starting to network a lot and participate in the local bar associations. And one of the things that happened is that a friend at the Beverly Hills Bar Association was speaking at Comic-Con and mentioned that if you know, he had a couple of free passes if people wanted to go and he'd sort of run out of people to to give them to because ordinarily he'd set his speakers up with them. And I basically raised my hand and said, yeah, I'll go. I'll go attend your session and also just, you know, network at Comic-Con. Went to Comic-Con, wandered around chatting with people. And one of the things that the badge was was a professional badge because he was a speaking, of course, as a professional, as an attorney. And met a couple of people who were interested talked a little bit about some of the legal challenges they were facing. And then, of course, the people I was interested in, I, was, I had interesting conversations with, I tried to keep in touch, you know, LinkedIn or Twitter. And I think it was, it was Spike Trotman, who runs Iron Circus Comics uh, and a couple of other things, who mentioned on Twitter that she was really into this game called Habitica, or it was Habit RPG back then. Um, so I was like, well, you know, I, I enjoy productivity tools. Um, there's always this like shiny promise that comes along when you try out a new tool and let's, you know, I've got nothing to lose. Let's, let's give it a shot and tried it out. Really enjoyed it. And Habit RPG back then was entirely volunteer driven. It had done a small Kickstarter campaign, but was largely sort of open source volunteer developers, volunteer community moderators, volunteer pixel artists and everything. Uh, and just sort of poking around on the website, there was a call for like, I need some legal advice. Please get in touch if you are a lawyer. So I got in touch and talked to Tyler Ranelli, who was the sole developer and founder at the time. And, you know, hit it off pretty well and stayed in touch. And it was really little things like pointing out areas where things didn't quite add up. 
like for a long time, we had a copyright notice at the bottom of your task page in the browser version, which made no sense because we weren't going to claim copyright on how you worded your tasks, right? Uh, so that didn't need to be there. And flagging really little things like that uh, and also starting to point out areas where stuff could be improved was, I think, really what got me on people's radars and uh, really entrenched in the community. At the same time, I was running around with a couple of my college buddies um, who had had an idea to do a video game. And we put together a small team of people who had had experience and other skill sets that were useful and were trying to do a top-down third-person naval shooter for Xbox. We'd gotten as far as naming it Strawberry Armada uh, and got a prototype working, and then it just fizzled out. And that's one of the things I learned from that is, is that sometimes bridging the intent and the actual execution is a big there's a big gap there, right? It's tough to be like, I want to do a new thing, but also go through the actions required to get make that new thing a reality. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges with actually getting over that hurdle? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are in that situation where they want to do something, but there's not enough time, or there's not enough money, or they're not sure what the next steps are, or they yeah. get bogged down and it takes longer to code than they thought it would, et cetera. Yeah, you know, that is the, a tough problem that everyone's trying to crack, I know in this particular case, it was a lack of energy availability, as well as just a lack of familiarity with the the amount of steps involved in getting a product to market. You can have the idea in your head that you want to put out a video game, but until you draw it out and map out what the interactions look like, what the screens look like, what the characters look like, um, so on and so forth, your developer can't make that up for you. And half the time, your developer won't even want to do your job for you because that's a completely fair thing to decide. So in this particular case, it was just once I think one team member stopped pulling their weight, then everyone else sort of started like, okay, well, hold on. I can't move forward, but I also don't want to make any decisions for the rest of the team. So everyone sort of ended up in a, ended up in a holding pattern and eventually just sort of died a natural death. So you somehow found yourself in this position where you've gone from trucking to being sort of a legal counsel for a productivity-based video game and, and also working with a group of friends to build a video game. What's up with you and games? Were you just a big gamer or, or was just a complete coincidence? You know, funny thing is I was not a big gamer, but that was not by choice. <laughs> I was sort of, we had grown up with a very old bootleg, I think Nintendo console back in the day and we're just restricted from playing too much uh, spending too much time on it and when I say we it's me and my sister my sister is now a neuroscientist who works in sleep and circadian rhythms so actually surprisingly still sort of related to what we do at Habitica so I was not allowed to play video games as a child but was always sort of aware that this was a thing that other people did and I do have that sort of addictive personality in that if you sit me down in front of a of a game, there is a very good chance that I'll just end up getting sucked into it. In college, I found a really small browser-based MMORPG called Kingdom of Loathing. And Kingdom of Loathing is so small that I think Habitica is larger than it is now. Um, or even it, it is Habitica now is larger than Kingdom of Loathing was even at its peak. 
but it was my first real MMORPG experience. And the reason I had opted to play this game was that they limited you to 40 turns, like 40 click-through turns. And it was a really amusing way to pass, you know, probably 20, 20 minutes, half an hour. Uh, and the original intent was for Kingdom of Loading to be a game that you could play on your coffee breaks. And I, you know, clicked through it, really enjoyed it. It had a bunch of goofy puns and stick figure artwork, but it also had a community of gamers. And I really sort of enjoyed the social aspect. And, and I still like keep up with with a couple of people from that space. That was smart of you to pick a game that couldn't take over your life because I picked World of Warcraft. Oh, yes. I would not have graduated college if I hadn't found some way to pull myself away from that game. Well, and, and that was the thing is I knew if I had started getting into it, I probably would not have gotten out. <laughs> um, there were absolutely people on my floor who, you know, if they weren't playing World of Warcraft, it was Dota. And then afterwards, now I think League of Legends for a while. So I, I definitely saw it taking time away from other people. And I think if esports had been a larger thing back then, it would have been less disturbing to me. But back then when I was in college, it was like, oh, esports is a thing that for like crazy Counter-Strike people in South Korea. So it didn't seem like a viable way to spend a whole lot of your time. So let's talk about how you eventually became the CEO of Habitica. How did you go from being one of the contributing community members to being the person at the top who's kind of running the company and handling all the business tasks? Nobody else wanted the job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to, to be perfectly clear, I think one of the things that people don't realize as, as CEO is you are sort of largely responsible for everybody. You're responsible for making the decisions and taking the fall for decisions that are poorly decided. I mentioned earlier, I sort of approached my job as a servant CEO is what can I do to enable everybody else to do their jobs well? And I think at some point, my co-founders had realized that they did not want to be in that position. They did not have the skill sets to be in that position or did not have the personality. And I think because I had years at this point of sort of thinking about business and thinking about strategy and thinking about um, our community, that I was sort of the natural fit to, 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 to step into that spot. Did they reach out to you or did you ask or did it just sort of kind of come together? It sort of came together. I think there was a, a time when people realized that they didn't want to do the job uh, and that I was still around and spending time and doing, starting to, to take over a lot of that responsibility anyway. So the shift was more for general optics than it was for any actual responsibility change. I guess I will say the the main responsibility change is that that I became the main responsible person for the main person responsible for determining whether or not we were going to raise funds through like the traditional VC startup round or try and figure out something else. And how did that go down? It went down really interestingly um, in that we, because we have such a unique product and such a strong community, we were, we were very protective of it. Um, so we didn't just want to go straight up like, Hey, we're going to take VC money for whatever, give us money and we'll, we'll, we'll bring you on board. It was, uh, is this person the right fit? Are these people, the, the people to help us develop Habitica in a way that makes sense for everybody? And definitely, you know, we turned down a couple of offers. Our 
two investors right now are people who are first and foremost really good people. Like I would want to invite these people to a backyard barbecue and hang with them instead of, you know, it's not just because I took their money. And they have operational experience or they have a skill set that I don't have um, and PR relationships that I don't have. So we've been very fortunate in terms of um, being able to work with uh, marker capital and backstage capital as our two main investors. I'll mention, without mentioning any names, we did have a surprising interaction with a couple of really top tier people who dismissed us because they didn't expect our company to be making a product that wasn't just for girls. Basically, they were surprised when it turned out that Habitica's gender breakdown is roughly 50-50. You know, at worst, it's been 60% male, 40% female. Right. And we sort of, that was one of the interviews where we came out going like, we make a video game, <laughs> right? Why did they look at this and decide that it was for girls? Yeah. That didn't make sense. That's a pretty bad sign of uh, their general competence level around that area anyway. Right. And, and this was absolutely a firm that had spent a lot of time trying to, you know, talk about their strength in female founders and... Um, getting female founders together and developing a community. And that was just not the experience that we had going into this interview. And then there was, of course, another firm also very well regarded who tried to lowball us on evaluation. And not just lowball us, but drastically lowball us, as in I was starting to do research on the side, talking to their existing portfolio companies, and the existing portfolio companies were surprised at what the valuation they offered was. Like, not even, not even in the same ballpark. Um, so once you start getting experiences like that, you sort of like start thinking that maybe VC money isn't quite the right way to go. And then we also always knew that there was stuff that we could be doing on our end to make the position stronger. So the valuable thing for us has been that because we've been cash flow positive, um, there has been a lot of freedom not to take VC money in order to survive. And that's, uh, I think, something that distinguishes us from a lot of other companies. Yeah, it's funny to hear about this VC firm that talked about being great with female founders, and then it turned out that they just assumed that anything that you were making had to only be for girls. It's uh, yeah. It actually reminds me of this thing I read a while ago about marketing and how a lot of companies will handle their marketing by just picking what they're really bad at and then saying the exact opposite. So an airline commercial will show people super comfortable and relaxed and stretching out in their seats when the reality is like, everybody hates airline seats and there's no room to stretch. And, you know, maybe that's what this VC firm is doing by telling you that they are good with, with female founders. <laughs> maybe they just knew they were horrible. Anyway, let's talk a little bit more about sort of the history of Habit RPG, as it was called at the time, and how that sort of led to the point where you are now the CEO and you're, and you're making decisions about fundraising. How did it get started? Uh, how did Habit RPG get its very first users? And how did it grow? Yeah, so Habit RPG originally started as, I think, Tyler's kind of personal project. It was put on GitHub just because he was a big proponent, and I'm sure he still is, uh, a big proponent of open source software. And what happened was, I think Reddit found it. And between Reddit found it and a life hacker feature, the costs of maintaining it rapidly ballooned past what he could support on his own. Uh, and the suggestion back then in, I think, late 2012, early 2013 was, gosh, put it on um, Kickstarter, which was a brand new thing. So he put it on Kickstarter. It raised, I think, 
forty more than forty thousand dollars, and very quickly with a lot of uh, fanfare and a lot of early support. So that was really what kicked it off. Um, I found Habit RPG a couple months after that. And then several months after that, we had managed the conversion from in-app purchases to a subscriber based model, which enabled us to, to sort of start working on it full time. Currently, where we're at is we had sort of grown out the, subscribe, the subscription basis and switched in a couple of years ago to realizing that a lot of people really wanted a mobile experience of Habitica. I mean, we had known that going in, starting even from the Kickstarter campaign, that that was going to be a thing that we would have to offer eventually. But the big surprise is once we spent some time working on the experience on mobile side, developing a native app for it uh, and developing a cohesive design for it, that that side of the user base really just grew. Like suddenly two thirds of our user base is on, on mobile. And I think that's still the case today is that at least 20, 30% of our users just moved over to mobile, as in that's the way that they fit Habitica into their lives. We generally get at least at least 2,000 new users a day on mobile alone. Oh, wow. So That's a ton. Absolutely. And it's a, a lot of it is word of mouth. A lot of it is people searching for being able to turn their lives into a game. We actually do very, very little marketing. Let's talk about some of the strategic and tactical things that you've done to grow Habitica and your company. I think one of the most unique things you've got going on is your community because so many people in the community are doing different things. You've got people who are, or at least early on, were contributing artwork creations to the game, who are writing documentation, who are writing guides. You yourself are part of the community and you're helping with legal aspects of the business. I'm curious how you think about the community part of Habitica and how does how does that even work? I mean, most businesses do not have anything that's even remotely resembling that. And it seems to be such a, a kind of a superpower for Habitica because it means that you can get a lot more done with just the employees that you have. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about community is that it is very relationship-based. So I knew as a non-technical founder, what I did have to offer was the ability to listen to users and to be able to reach out and say hello and have that kind of personal contact. And that has really driven, I think, a large part of our relationship with, in that our hardcore users know that there are people and faces behind the app. We know a lot of our early users by name. We know pretty much all of our trolls by name. Uh, and usually <laughs> when there's somebody new who's added to the team, there's like this little in- induction where eventually they hear about somebody that they haven't heard about before and we'll be able to explain to them exactly why this troll is no longer around and the trials and tribulations that were involved in getting them off of Habitica. You know, and on the flip side, there are users who we get excited about on the contributor side or even just on the cheerleader side, like... Um, we know exactly who our top supporters are. And even if they're not giant social media followings, they're just the people who like happily will share every little update, every patch, every pet they've hatched, um, every time they level up. Uh, we're, we're aware of all those interactions. So I think that's been the strongest piece of our community is, is that uh, we interface so much. We're not, we don't wall ourselves off behind a corporate face. I think people kind of assume that businesses and communities are run by robots who don't <laughs> who don't actually care what's going on and aren't aware of it because so many seem to be. 
Oh, absolutely. And and we definitely get that interaction, too, is that people come in basically swinging their arms and swearing. And then once we respond back with a very human response, they're like, oh, sorry. <laughs> like, I didn't realize. And, I get the same thing on the Indie Hackers Forum. And, and, and to be honest, like, you know, there, there are people behind the, the screens at larger companies, too. But we do try to infuse our communications with a little bit more uh, personality to try and prevent that. How exactly does the community work from a technical perspective? How does a user become part of the Habitica community? Because I'm sure most people who start playing are playing for the game itself. They're playing to be more productive. They're playing to form uh, useful habits. How do they go from doing that to being a contributor? Yeah, well, the contributors are really just such a small slice of the user population, but they are your most dedicated users. They are your cheerleaders. They will tell you when they think you've screwed up and sometimes be absolutely correct. Usually, we actually have a page on the wiki that tells you what we're looking for, how you can help, that we tend to direct people to. Um, Obviously, developers are always appreciated, but community moderators are a surprisingly difficult skill set to locate. It is super rare to find somebody who has the ability to de-escalate conflicts or redirect or calm people down or even just tell somebody that they are out of line without having that person be insulted. How do you identify these people? I'm, I'm curious about like the things that you've learned because, like you said, it's pretty hard to actually find the right people. It's hard to manage all this stuff. It's hard just to do things like give developers a chunk of code that they can work on and then review it in a way that's friendly to them. So, uh, What are some of the things that you've learned in setting up this framework and finding the right people and sort of managing them as they contribute to your community? You know what? I rely a lot on my team. At this point, I don't have all that much interaction on the day-to-day, uh, on the day-to-day um, interactions with the people who are wanting to help out. By the time I hear about somebody, it's like, hey, this particular individual has been doing a lot of high-quality commits. We should keep an eye on them the next time we're able to bring on an additional contractor. Or this particular user has been super helpful in answering newbie questions in the various public spaces let's level them up and i should talk a little bit about our contributor leveling system uh, because one of the things that we did early on was rank your contribution levels so that people who were sort of helping out would get this little colored tag in the public spaces and that would you know confer on them a level extra level of like social status and that was surprisingly motivating i mean we pegged a very very small reward to each additional level but it's i mean basically if you spent that time and did any other job you would probably make enough to purchase those rewards off the bat um instead it's really people who want to give back to the community in some way and then they get recognition and then they become more invested and that also just opens up the pool for us to hire from our community and i do take the time to try and get to know the top level contributors and be aware of everybody else who's coming up through the ranks in part, because that's really a nice pool of potential candidates for when we need to hire somebody is, is to reach out and be like, Hey, I know you have the skill set. We're looking for somebody to do exactly this. You want to come on board. So it's a combination of this almost programmatic incentive system and getting to know people personally, because there's really no substitute for doing that. If you want people to help you with their company, even if they are community based volunteers and not full-time employees. Absolutely. It's all about sort of balancing 
both the quantitative and the qualitative, the left brain and the right brain stuff. Yeah, I wonder how much other companies can sort of build up a community among their users or their audience and get people helping them actually working on their business. I know uh, one of my friends runs a podcast. Uh, his name's Jeff. He runs Software Engineering Daily. And his listeners have oh, yeah. kind of chipped in to help him build a mobile app and some other stuff on GitHub. And it's interesting to think about how that comes to pass. Like maybe having a big platform or a big audience really helps you build a community. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are and how people can sort of best position themselves to get a community of people helping them to build their companies. I don't even think that you need a big audience is that you have to have a willingness to ask for help. And if you are providing value, people will inevitably want to figure out a way that they can give back, whether it's, you know, putting a couple dollars into a PayPal tip jar or designing something uh, specifically for you. It's funny that you mentioned Software Engineering Daily because definitely one of our developers, Keith Holiday, has been helping them out. And I believe that's one of his favorite podcasts as well. Cool. It's a great podcast. So you mentioned earlier that you guys haven't done very much marketing. And I think that's fascinating to have a company that sort of grows by word of mouth. I'm curious what marketing have you guys done? What things have you tried and what's worked and what hasn't? Yeah, I mean, the biggest portion of our current marketing strategy is really the social media side. And when I say we haven't done much marketing, it's we haven't done a lot of paid advertising and the user acquisition strategies. Right. And that is totally a valid strategy strategy that I understand that if you get the economics right, you can definitely just keep cranking that engine. But we've just never really had the resources to even try and spend the time to figure out how that would work for Habitica. It's definitely on our to-do list, uh, but so far we have been redeploying any resources we have into building out the app and trying to, to stay keep up with our user base. So one of the things I want to mention about our social media strategy is um, Beth, who's Bethy Maru on Habitica. She's been manning the Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr accounts and recently just launched our Instagram account. So look for that. that that'll be coming up. We're excited to, to have another avenue to sort of get some interaction time with our user base. And how do you guys think about this stuff when you decide to launch on Instagram or, or hit another channel? Do you have specific goals that you're aiming for, metrics that you want to hit, or is it more that you just want to have a presence there because your fans are there? At uh, the current stage, we should have metrics. It is one of our weaknesses that we are really working on shifting over this year into a company that does a little bit more data-driven decisions. Mostly what we've been trying to do is look at it from a human angle. What do you expect? What do you enjoy about your favorite Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts? Definitely respond to any help request that comes through, even if it's just to redirect them to emailing a particular account. And I think what people don't realize is that even if we're not interacting with a piece of feedback in any obvious way, we've definitely seen it. Like we've looked at it, we've considered it and Maybe we decide not to respond or maybe we just don't have the capacity to respond at the moment. But we do see everything that comes in and read everything that comes in. How do you think about growing Habitica's revenue as opposed to just your user base? And what are your goals in that area? Yeah, that is actually an excellent question. One of the things that we wanted to try and figure out is that we get a lot of inbound requests from people who want to use Habitica in groups. So not just parties and quests that you can battle monsters with your friends, but they want to be, it's like people who are managing a small team at work who want to be like, 
I need you to turn in, in this report on time at least once a week or submit uh, submit your proposal by X date. And they want to be able to gamify these processes because those interactions really aren't a lot of fun. And the hope there is that by adding a little bit of game flavor, we can at least soften the blow a little bit. You know, similarly, teachers want to use it with their students. There are plenty of households running a sort of chore system through our dailies. And what we realize is that there are a lot of things that we can be doing in that space to really make Habitica useful for that kind of thing. If your living environment is not being kept up, then that will, at its very worst, have an impact on your physical health. So what we are looking at is that groups are going to be the next big area of focus for us. And hopefully that will open a new revenue stream for our users as, as they sort of graduate from school and start moving into jobs and new living situations. The other thing that we've been sort of taking a lot of time to look at, especially in the last several months, is that we know we have a large segment of users who are you know, burned out on Habitica because they've gotten bored with it or they've done everything that there is to be in the uh, everything that there is to do in the game. And the novelty has worn off. So we're working on a couple of things that we're hoping will bring some of the magic back for those particular people. Both of the things that you mentioned, actually, number one, the group dynamics, and number two, the novelty are interesting to me because they both play a lot into human psychology. I'd love to talk more about some of this the psychology behind Habitica and how it works. What goes into somebody forming a habit and what's the science behind how you guys have designed your app? So kind of the the references that we usually talk about is Charles Duhigg's book, The Power of Habit. It's definitely something that we get that that gets that, that we've talked about. BJ Fogg does a habit building kind of mini course out of Stanford that gets mentioned a lot. But basically you sort of want to trigger a routine and then make sure that you are rewarded for that kind of behavior change. And one of the things that I think Habitica does particularly well is that, yes, there are triggers and then that triggers the action and then you do the action. But most gamification strategies are really rudimentary, like leveling system uh, or you earn a badge. Whereas what we've done is we've gone back to look at, you know, what makes games interesting and it was like, well, it's not just leveling, but it's leveling up so you get access to a particular skill that you really want. Or you want to crank through your chores today because then you can get that sweet helmet that just got released. Adding a little bit more juice and flavor to those interactions is really what sets Habitica apart. Do you guys find that people are motivated by sort of individual unique things? Or is it more or less uh, universal what motivates people and what motivates your users? Honestly, our users start to look more like the gamer dynamic in that there are people who are motivated by the social aspect. Like they're fighting a boss. They don't want their friends to be injured by the fact that they didn't manage to complete their research paper on time. There are users who just really want to level up quickly and cycle through and do it fast and basically do the equivalent of a Habitica speed run. So they're micromanaging everything through Habitica. One of the surprises when we looked into the analytics analytics is that I think our top 1% of users spends like 
four to seven hours a day in the app. Wow. They just like keep it open and, and just keep poking at it. And our only conclusion is that they're very, either very active on the social side or they're just micro, micromanaging every single interaction they have in their lives through this frame, framework. You know, these are not one-off users. That they're, they're people who've been around for several months. And then, you know, you have your people who are motivated by, like, dressing up nicely. Uh, there's a little bit of, like, a paper dolls effect of people want to set up a nice background and pick the right color pet and put on the right robe that goes with the background and the pet uh, so that they look cool and then put it out on social media. There's a small population of those as well. So it's been interesting to see the different styles. And even on the team, there's a multitude of different play strategies there's at least one person who's working on um, a beast master achievement, which is just you've collected all the pets and uh, released them. And then there's also people who are just really using Habitica to check to make sure that they're maintaining progress towards their goals. And they just take a look at their dailies, check them off, and then move on to the next thing. Uh, so there's a full full range of styles and motivations. And probably what we're going to do over, t- over time is really start digging into how do we determine the best way to motivate individual users given what we know about them? Yeah, I was going to say, you've got such a huge variety of things that people use Habitica for and, and even the ways that they use the app. And I think that's analogous to a lot of people who have started companies that have created products that are just very generally applicable. They don't uh, appeal to a very particular niche or single use case. And I think it's difficult when you're in that situation to find out okay, well, who's the most valuable user? Who's the most likely to succeed using our app? And how do we zoom in on, on what they're doing? So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that toward the end. How do you decide who to focus on and what kinds of people to motivate and how much of it is just hands-off and you let people use the app however they want and you know go forward with that strategy? At the very least, we internally are developing it for ourselves. Because the team has all come out of the community, we all use the app, we're all very familiar with it, and we all know exactly where the faults are and the areas where we'd like to fix are. Um, So frequently there's a lot of discussion about, well, this no longer works for me, why not? How can we solve that problem? One of the things that we've been trying to do is just tracking more data, not tracking more data, but looking at the data when we're making decisions. Because what we realized is that while we're very good at listening to the qualitative data, like the users who are complaining about problems and things, we were ignoring a whole like 80 to 90% of, of basically silent majority people who may not be vocal or articulate about what they like or dislike, but they have very specific ways that they use a product that don't necessarily intersect with um, how we as the team use it or how the community that we interface with regularly uses it. So for example, one of the things that came up last year that we were completely unaware of is that, or not completely unaware of, but we were um, not accounting for when we were planning our project strategy is that I think a good 80 to 90% of our users actually never enter the public spaces. So whereas beforehand, our user flow would be to try and try and gently like push them towards like, here are some guilds that might interest you. Uh, Oh, I see you're into writing. Check out these these three options. Um, That was actually not a natural flow for a lot of people. What people really wanted was a space where they could battle monster with their battle monsters with their friends and bring their friends onto the platform. They really didn't want to interact with strangers in a new, you know, social network. That's fascinating. It's a. 
it's tough to get people to interact with strangers. It's like a big thing that I'm trying to do on the Indie Actors Forum. There's a bunch of founders, and I'm like, hey, talk, yeah. talk to other founders and tell them what your problems are and see if they have any interesting creative insights that you wouldn't have by yourself. And there's a lot of resistance to doing that because you don't, other people are scary and you don't know what they're going to say and how they're going to interact. And, you know, your friends are a known quantity. So it's a little bit safer to be around them. Yes. And I think it's also the, there's sort of, there's not a lot of that kind of interaction in your n- normal life where you just walk into a room full of strangers. As entrepreneurs, like, especially, I think on the tech side, there are a lot of people who are natural invert, introverts, right? For like, for example, in my case, I, it took me several months to get used to the idea of walking into a networking event, not knowing anybody and being able to have like a genuine conversation and make a genuine connection. We had been thinking that in games, that's actually a fairly natural interaction in that sometimes you join a game, you don't know anybody, your friends haven't started playing the game. So you just walk in and go like, I'm looking for a group. Where can I join a group? And while there is still a large population of users on Habitica who are very familiar with that lingo and that sort of usage pattern, there's a much larger group of people who maybe don't don't want to engage with the stranger if they have any other options. So they're trying to find a pathway to get their friends on the, on the platform, which can also be a growth strategy. And we're hoping to be able to employ that a little bit more effectively. So zooming out here a little bit, you've been working on Habitica for uh, how many years now? I joined them in, I think, full-time in late 2013. Okay, so like four and a half, four and a half years or so? Yeah. Uh, what are some, I'm sure you've made a ton of decisions in that time about the game, about how it's laid out. Can you give me one example of a decision that you guys made that worked out really well, and then perhaps one example of a decision that you guys made that backfired? Hmm. So we actually haven't made too many changes to the core game. But I'll tell you something interesting about one of the the changes that we made that was surprisingly controversial. Is currently Habitica allows you to play after a certain time one of four different classes. You can be a warrior, a mage, a healer, or a rogue. Each of those classes comes with different skill sets, which ties nicely into exactly how you motivate yourself. For example, if you are motivated by acquiring lots of gear for your character, then rogue is going to be your, your class of choice, right? If you're motivated by doing damage to the boss and landing these like 100 point, 200 point hits against the monster that your party is engaged in, then a warrior or a mage is going to be your pick. And then if you're somebody who checks in fairly regularly and likes to be helpful, or in my case, if you're cleaning up after yourself because you haven't managed to hit all your dailies, healer is your class of choice. So that is, you know, fairly standard class system distribution. It is a regular feature on a lot of different MMORPGs. But when we first introduced it, it was apparently super controversial because people didn't want that extra level of complication. They thought it was too gamified. And of course, now people really can't imagine Habitica without it unless they're very, very new to the platform. How do you handle people complaining about a change that you've introduced that you feel confident about that they think is not good at all? So I think this happens to a lot of apps. This happens to a lot of apps. Um, We have been trying out for the last few releases that we know are going to be difficult. We know our users are going to be change-averse in a lot of ways. Um, Habitica, we, we put a lot of work into making sure that Habitica is a safe space. But 
you know, when you are prone to anxiety or you're trying to manage everything, uh, when stuff moves around on you, it is stressful. But sometimes those changes are really necessary. So what we've been doing the last few releases is instituting a two-week moratorium on any feedback. And, you know, and they're free to go shout on social media or whatever, but we don't really start taking and logging complaints until the two-week period has passed, just to let everybody get used to the change and see if it works for them or if it really doesn't work for them. That also helps a lot of people simmer down. There are some individuals for whom that two-week period is just, two-week period is really just a time to stew, but there's, so it's surprisingly not a large portion. Usually by the end of two weeks, people have already sort of like gotten used to it, moved on, or they're going to take the time and send us a nice message about like the things that we have changed. So that has been super helpful to us. One of the things that we think might also continue to improve on the process is a little bit more regimented of a testing process with a lot of our maybe our more dedicated users or users for whom we're trying to solve a particular problem is getting more systematic about inviting people to test a new user or a new feature and uh, tracking the data on that before we make any long-term decisions about overall product changes. It's interesting to hear about your decision to introduce a class system to Habitica. Class systems are pretty well known as a staple of RPG games, and RPG games are themselves pretty well known to be habit-forming. And so if you copy what an RPG is doing, then you're very likely to bring along some of the habit-forming attributes of RPGs as well. How much of what you guys are doing with Habitica is sort of inadvertently introducing habit-forming properties, and how much of what you're doing is very deliberately constructed from the ground up to allow your users to form and set new habits? Yeah. um, I think remembering to reward users somehow is a really big thing that people sort of instinctively grasp, but they don't look for opportunities to do. For example, one of the changes that we made that was more impactful than we realized would be at the time is that we allowed sound effects for when you set up a or when you checked off a task, um, Habitica would give you a little sound. And of course, you know, we had some contributors who worked on some sounds for checking off a daily versus checking off a positive habit, 8-bit themes, different style video game themes, uh, and all of that. When we released the new mobile apps, that was one of the things people missed. And every once in a while, it would fall off or stop working on the mobile app, and people would be like, "Where? where's my sound? Where's my like nice reward for checking things off? And I feel like that's one of those things where like they're so intrinsic to games that we don't think about them, but that's absolutely something that you can incorporate into other apps is rewarding uh, a user's interaction in some, some way that's, you know, not super expensive of, of a, of a process, but on the experience side, it's nice. So we are approaching the end of our time. I've got one question from a user on the ND Hackers forum. The question comes from an ND Hackers user named Alchemist. He asks, what is the most amazing way that Habitica has improved somebody's life? Oh, man. There are so many. You know what? There's, a, there's actually a guild in Habitica that we set up for people to sort of announce their testimonials. And occasionally we'll pull a, a few of those onto the webpage, um, the front page to, to talk about it. There is, actually, let me talk about Mary. Um, so Mary Robinette Kowal is one of our more well-known users. She is a writer and a puppeteer. And 
we reached out to her when she we found out she was going to be in San Diego for Comic-Con. And what she told us was basically that um, Habitica helped her pull herself out of a depressive funk. And between Habitica and um, another app called Fabulous, she was able to moderate her depression where she could drastically reduce the amount of medication she had to take, which was a thing that was important to her. Uh, and she credits, she definitely expressed her gratitude and thanks and uh, credited our platform with helping her do that. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's one of my favorite stories. We've also had at least one couple get together on Habitica. Very cool. So that was fun. <laughs> Habitica, the dating app. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's meant for that kind of interaction. And every once in a while, we'll get some probably school-aged individual who really wants sexy times and doesn't quite know how to get there. And we have to rapidly tell them to knock it off, <laughs> which is, I mean, it's just one of those things where I remind myself and remind the team regularly that sort of our app as it is, is designed for people who are non-neurotypical in some way, right? We're all playing games. We need um, that extra oomph to accomplish particular tasks. So we're going to get a lot of wacky people up in the mix. Of course. So why don't we wrap things up by taking a look at your entire journey, which is, I mean, you went from studying law to working at this trucking business to working on your own projects to working on Habitica sort of part-time and then eventually moving to full-time CEO where you've been for years. What are some lessons that you've learned from all of this that you think other entrepreneurs would benefit from hearing as well? Oh, man. Um, I've got a lot of soft skill type recommendations. Definitely, definitely take care of yourself. For me, the toughest thing was realizing that I do need to sleep. I can't just, you know, work hard and have everything fall into place. Because what happens when you get enough sleep and do things like meditate, which is actually a, a really critical part of my routines these days, is you are better able to make high quality decisions. The thing in startups is there's a culture of generally making a decision and moving on, but you can save a whole lot of time and energy if you can make the right decision the first time around. So, you know, working harder is one thing. And I think minor superpowers is I am capable of working like a dog compared to everybody around me. But the flip side of that is sometimes I work like a dog on exactly the wrong thing. That's not going to be the biggest value as in my business. So being able to, to sort of take the time to step back, think about it, rest enough so that you're, you've got a clear head in order to be able to make that decision is super important. And that was a hard lesson learned. Also sort of related to that was being able to hear, to parse through a lot of different advice from a lot of different places and figure out what worked for Habitica and what, what worked for me. I approach things from a very different perspective, I think, as somebody who is non-technical, as somebody who's not based in the Bay Area, and as also just because Habitica grew out of a community and grew out of an open source project, I have different responsibilities than a lot of the other startups I talk to, and which means that I make decisions sometimes differently than a company that is maybe not cash flow positive or um, has had co-founders working with them temporarily or even long-term. Yeah. Being able to filter out the advice and, and figure out what works for you. 
both of those are lessons that I think everybody really needs to hear. To your first point, a huge part of building a business is making the right decision at any point in time. And there's an infinite universe of decisions, but only a few of them are the right decision. So getting enough sleep and being in the right headspace so that you can make the best decisions is really a huge part of the job. And then to your second point, every business is unique and everyone's different. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't learn from other people, but it certainly means that you should be critical of the advice you receive and see if it really applies to you. So I think it's awesome that you've really taken both of those lessons to heart, and I hope people listening will do the same. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on the show, Vicky. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to personally and also where they can go to learn what's going on with Habitica? All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening to me ramble on. Definitely. I am probably the most easily available on Twitter. I am at caffeinatedv. So C-A-F-F-E-I-N-A-T-E-D-V-E-E. That's caffeinatedv at Twitter. And Habitica also is on Twitter, now Facebook and Instagram. We also have a fairly active Tumblr account. Tumblr is your jam. Or you can just, you know, swing by, say hello to the tavern, and we're always happy to see people there. All right. Thanks a ton, Vicky. Thank you, Cortland. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.